The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. So find the book of Matthew. I know I've been there for a while, and we're in chapter 6. So if you have that book, a Bible, turn to chapter 6 of Matthew. And we're studying the King's Sermon. It is the Sermon on the Mount, also known, and it's Jesus is addressing the religious system of that day and their religious leaders. And pretty much throughout the whole book so far, he's calling them phonies. Their morality, morality was external. Their humility was non-existent. Instead of being salt and light to the world, they were part of the corruption and the darkness. Instead of believing in the law of God how it's supposed to be interpreted. They came up with their own man traditions. And instead of having really internal heart set on the principles, they had nothing but really an external code of their spiritual ethics. And instead of having genuine worship, they had false standards in their giving, praying, and fasting. Everything was hypocrisy. Everything about them so far, Jesus addresses is external, self-centered, self-motivated. And in contrast to that, he says, I want it internal. I want you to have the right heart. And again, the key verse to this sermon, in my opinion, is verse 20 in chapter 5, where it says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So theirs was an external righteousness without a right heart. And Jesus says, I want you to have the right heart. And Jesus continues addressing the issues of various issues in our daily lives. And now we come to an issue dealing with wealth, money, possessions. Now, we talked about giving, right? We briefly dealt with money and possessions and things like that. But here he addresses it a little bit differently from a different angle. And we pick up in verse 19, and it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that's in you is darkness... How great is that darkness? And then in verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be a loyal to the other one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You know, as human beings, we are really a thing-oriented people. Sometimes we are strongly inclined and get wrapped up in Seeking, acquiring, protecting our material possessions, right? We want stuff. 
And we can't live in America, honestly, and not be tempted to want stuff, right? Companies spend billions of dollars putting ads on TV so you can buy the things you don't need and impress the people you don't like, right? We want a smarter cell phone, right? We have cell phones. We want a smartphone. Only the problem is as soon as you're able to afford one, a smarter one comes out, and now you're stuck with a dumb one. So again, we get this thing, I want the smarter one. And we're really surrounded with oceans of things, you know, big things, little things, domestic things. It could be a toaster, it could be ironing board, I don't know, an iron or whatever, coffee makers. We have clothing, suits, shoes, ties, dresses. And a lot of people have a belief that it's in those things that determine whether you're really a happy person or not, right? You may be happy for a minute, but then, like I said, the new cell phone comes out, you're like, not happy anymore. You know, it's interesting, I read an article, and it said back in 1900, there was a survey done, and they asked a question, how many things do you have to have in order to be happy? 1900. And the answer was 72. That was the average. Then they asked those same people who are still alive in 1950, how many things do they think they need to be happy? And the answer was 496. I wonder if those people were still alive today in 2022, what the answer would be in order to be a happy person. Why is it that we need to give serious consideration to the whole subject of things in our possessions, material, money, wealth, all those things? The reason we have to give some serious thought, as you would see, because they have an impact on your life. It's crucial area on your life. They have an impact on your heart. They have an impact on the way you think, on your mind. And they have an impact on your will. And you see, the leading religious people of that day, scribes, Pharisees, and also rich people, not just them, but they were too preoccupied with things. They were materialistic. Why? Well, if you read Luke 16, 14, it says, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money. They were lovers of money. Well, how did they get there? Why did they become lovers of money? Well, if you really think out through the whole sermon so far that we've been looking at, well, first, remember the Beatitudes? Because they didn't have the right view of themselves. Or relation to the world or the Word of God. They twisted it, perverted it. That's why Jesus says, I haven't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. Their morality was not all there, and their religious duties, as we discussed, the worship, prayer, and giving, and fasting was all hypocritical. So it's no reason that they would become lovers of money, materialistic things, 
Now, you know, you heard me say it before, but in my opinion, the most important thing about a church is what it believes. It is what we call doctrine, right? So I do stress a lot on doctrine, and people say, well, you do a little bit too much, and it divides. Well, it does. It divides right from wrong. And you see, false doctrine leads to false standards. And false standards, what do they do? They lead to false behavior. It leads to false values. And that's why Jesus is kind of hypocritical on that religions, because it's accompanied all those things by greed and immorality. And this is, again, nothing new. It happened in the Old Testament. It's happened in our time. And Peter also wrote about this. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, first three verses, and he says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destructions. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be lashed. And look at verse 3. How are they going to do it? By covetousness. They will exploit you. Deceptive words. And if you look at verses 14 and 15, and look at the verse 14, it says, Having eyes, and we'll talk about the eyes here also, full of adultery, they cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. See who falls for that? Enticing unstable souls. Why were they unstable? Because they don't know the whole truth. They don't study the Word of God. Maybe they're a newcomer, I don't know, but that's what happens in our lives. We just go with what sounds good even though it's not correct, it's not the truth. And it says they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are cursed children. And verse 15 says they have forsaken in their right way and gone astray. And why do they go astray? Well, if you look at the last part of that verse, for they love the wages of what? Wickedness. Wickedness, unrighteousness, they love the wages. So we need to understand that false doctrine leads you further and further away from the truth, and you become blinded by this world, and especially materialistic things. That's how the devil gets you on the hook, right? And... Even Christians, we're not immune to it. I mean, there's a lot of people that look down on the church today. Now, they always have looked down on the church throughout history. But some of the reasons that the people look down on the church today, I actually have to agree. Because churches and Christianity in general became a, a profitable business enterprise. And you know, I see a lot of young men go into ministry for the wrong reasons. Actually, I was spoke, speaking to one the other day, and you know, kind of he wants to be a pastor and so forth. I encouraged him to come visit us, and you know, if he finishes seminary and things, maybe join us. And the first question was, How much are you going to pay me? I said, Nothing. 
they try to cash in. Why? Because they see these celebrity pastors, cool dudes. And again, this is nothing new. If you go to the book of 1 Samuel, you come to Eli, who was the high priest at the time. And I mean, Eli, if I can translate it in these terms, it's not going to be 100% correct, but so you understand, he was the pope. He was the top of their religious system. He was the high priest. He was at the top in Israel, key religious leader. And he had two sons. And his sons were great men of great responsibility. They were in the priestly line. They had great responsibility before God and people. But they were phonies. They were hypocrites. In 1 Samuel 2.12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. How can you be in ministry and not know the Lord? What were they doing there? So they're in ministry, and you can see that a lot today too. A lot of people in ministry, they went and got their degrees or whatever you want to call it, and they treat it as you would go get a degree in business or whatever. They're not really born again. It's just a job. And they do not know the Lord. So what was their scheme? What were they doing? Well, let me take you back to Leviticus and we read to you from Leviticus 7, verses 30 to 35. And it says this about offerings and instructions and what to do. And it says, His own hands shall bring the offering made by the fire to the Lord. The fat of the breast he shall bring that the breast may be weaved as the weave offering before the Lord. And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his sons. Now Aaron's and his sons were Elijah and his sons of that day. So he was the priest. Also the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. He among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right thigh for his part, for the breast of the weave offering and the thigh of heave offering, I have taken from children of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, I have given them to Aaron and priests to his sons from, from the children of Israel by the statue forever. This is a consecrated portion for Aaron and his sons from the offerings made by fire to the Lord. On the day of the when Moses presented them to minister to the Lord as priests. By the look on your faces, you're just like, what the heck did we just read? <laughs> well, I wanted to read that to you, but I know it's kind of confusing, but what it means is when an offering is brought to the Lord, the portion goes to the priests. That's all it means. So it was kind of, I just wanted you to see that. I'm not making this up. There was actually a rule about this. So, you know, they bring an offering. Part of it goes to the priests. That's how they ate. You know, that was their money, if you will. But what they do is 
They took the offering. They took what they wanted and left the leftovers for God. I mean, they were in it for everything they could, they could get. I mean, you can get that meat and then sell it on the market, do whatever you wish with it. So they went in and didn't follow the instructions. People bring in the offering. They demanded that they see it first to take the best pieces of that meat for their own indulgence or whatever. And whatever is left over, they left to the Lord. They were covetous and greedy. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. You see, they were tampering with the things of God. This is what belonged to God. And the Pharisees, folks, at that time, they were doing the exact same thing. They were using their religious positions to fill their pockets. The system was filled with their greed. And you know what the worst part about this? The sons were doing this, and the Eli, the high priest, number one priest in Israel. Look at 1 Samuel 2.22. Now Eli was very old, but it's no excuse that you're old. And says, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel. Not only that, and it says how they lay with women who assemble at the door of tabernacle meetings. So they committed these sexual offenses. They stole from the church. Church became a place of business, so you would, if you would. And why did that happen? Because people that are supposed to be in charge were filled with greed and were lovers of money. And in 1 Samuel 3.13, God says, For I have told him that I will judge his house for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. If anyone should be talking about sin, shouldn't be a priest giving correction, especially to your own children. But he did not restrain him. And folks, a lot of people are playing around with God's bride, the church, these days. And they don't realize how serious this is. You know, there's two instances in the Bible where Jesus cleansed the temple. One, uh, the first time was after he turned water into wine, right? We, leave, we read in uh, John 2, uh, 14 through 16, he says, And he found in the temple those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And the second time when he was entering Jerusalem and on the donkey, remember that entry into Jerusalem? And we read in Matthew 21, 12, it says, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who brought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold doves. And then he told them, it is written, my, sh- my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So throughout history of the church, and today there's a lot of 
charlatans, if you would. And they use the ministry as a means to collect wealth, to provide opportunity, indulge in their sexual lusts too. And it comes in various ways today. Sometimes it's just interesting, you know. Sometimes people just plain out steal from the church. You know, they just steal. Otherwise, they send you handkerchiefs, right? It's dipped in the water in Jordan or something like that. Or they send you some oil that you rub on your sick body or body part and it's going to heal you. Or they send you a letter that says confidential even though it was sent in the bulk mail. Or they say, you know, send me $50 or whatever and I will pray for you. And you send them a letter, they don't even open it. They just want the cash and they throw the letters out. All of this is an attempt to commercialize God. And the reason I'm pointing this out, because this is a serious offense. Jesus cleansed it out. And we can't use the church as a lottery ticket, if you will. You know what happens when we do this? Now, think with me for a moment. And some of you might not like what I have to say, but that's okay. You'll apologize to me later. So, church is a bride, right? And God has entrusted leaders, his people, to lead the church. And church is to be remain pure until the groom returns. When I'm taking God's bride, I'm trying to make money on her and get everything I can get with her materialistically, you know what I'm doing? I'm prostituting the church. I'm pimping out the church, if you would, his bride. What do you think God's going to do? You know, we forget what's written in Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, verse 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. So now I kind of went over that with you, but it's not just the Pharisees. There was also rich people that thought that it's easier for them to get into heaven. Because why? Because the sacrificial system, they can afford more sheep to sacrifice, more bulls, and so forth. So it's against this backdrop. Jesus is pointing out and talking about our possessions. Another thing that they used is, you know, and we hear that today too, without shame. Because they're so rich and they're materialistically, they have all this stuff, that means they're superior, spiritually more superior. Because they just claim on the basis of your wealth, health, and all those things that you possess, you're more holier. And they pervert things such as Proverbs 10.22 says, the blessings of the Lord makes one rich. No, it's not the blessing. It's because you stole. It's because you covet. So they took it, twisted it, but the Bible tells us and gives us a warning of wealth for our own sake. And it says, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. And in Matthew, he says, again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus is preaching. He says, my kingdom is this, and here's how you get in. So again, it's against this backdrop of greed, Pharisees, 
people relying on their wealth to get into the kingdom that Jesus speaks. And what he's saying is we must have a proper view of money, wealth, luxuries in our lives and possessions. Now, what's he forbidding here? Is he forbidding for us having a bank account, savings account, insurance policy? Is he saying we shouldn't possess anything? Is he saying we should sell everything and walk on the street with a brown bag looking like a hobo? Is that what she'd be doing? Is that what God's people is called to do? Understand when the Bible talks about materialism, wealth, possessions, and all those things, the concern is not what's in the bank or how much money you have. The concern is not how big your house is or how many garages you have or how many cars you have in the garage or how many taxes you pay. In fact, folks, it is God that gives you power to get wealth, right? If you go back to Deuteronomy 8.18, he who gives you power to get wealth. And then in 1 Timothy, Paul writes in 6.17, he says, command those who are rich at this present age not to be haughty, nor trust in uncertain riches, trust in the living God. And it says, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So he reminds them, hey, you got riches, that's good, but don't get proud, don't rely on them. And remember, God's the one that gave them to you. So some of the Old Testament saints that we well know of were rich. Abraham was rich, right? And we read in James 2, 23, it says he was a friend of God. Job was another one. And God actually made him more wealthier than he'd been before. In Job 42, 12, it says the Lord blessed latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep. I wonder how that smelled. 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And the New Testament also speaks providing wealth for our household. You are to take care of your families. And in 1 Timothy 5.8 we read, But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. So there is no question that God allows even grants a certain amount of wealth to his people. So I want us to understand Jesus in no way advocating poverty as a means to spirituality. In all his different instructions that he gave, really there's only one particular case where he told somebody to sell everything that they owe. And that was the rich young ruler. And the problem was because that became an obstacle becoming between him and God. That was his God. In Proverbs 11.28 again it says, He who trusts in his riches will fall. The problem was not in the wealth itself, but in his unwillingness to part from it. So the price was too high for him. Because the possessions were the first priority. And I want us to understand that New Testament, Old Testament also tells us and recognizes the right to material possessions, including money, land, animals, whatever, property, clothing, everything is honestly acquired. So if you think back to the Ten Commandments, right, in Exodus, it says, Thou shalt not steal. Well, 
That assumes that something can't be mine and you can't have it because it belongs to somebody else. You can't covet. So you do not have the right to steal somebody else's stuff because they have the right to own it. So the Word of God recognizes the right of ownership of goods, personal property. Also, Bible is not against planning for the future. That's what it says in Proverbs 6, uh, verses 6 through 18. It says, Go to an ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. The ant is smart enough to plan for the future. I think we're a little bit smarter than the ant, so we should also plan for the future. Wise savings are very important. In Proverbs 14, 23, it says, All labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads to only poverty. So in other words, you want to have some possessions, have some wealth, you got to go work. If you want to be poor, just talk. Proverbs 28, 19 says, He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows reality have poverty enough. In other words, go work. Don't chase wildcat sheems and things like that. Be wise. So you have the right to possess, uh, to, the, to, to things, and God enriches those possessions that he also gives us. So we have the right to seek needed things, provide for our families, plan for the future, make wise investments, and so on. You see, the problem is not with wealth or in having wealth or having money or earthly treasures. The problem is when they have you. When you ha they have you. In order to know how to handle our money and possessions, and folks, I'm going to use this word quite a bit, luxuries, because that's really what it's talking about here and the necessities you'll be talking about later. It says don't worry about your food. Those are necessities. But here, wealth, possessions, it's all what's considered luxuries. And to understand properly how to handle them, really he gives us three alternatives. He gives us two treasuries in verses 19 and 20. It says, lay up a treasure in earth or lay up your treasure in heaven. So you got two treasuries. We have to make a choice. In verses 22 and 23, there are two visions, light and darkness. And in verse 24, last alternative, is two masters. Two masters. So the Lord really gives us three choices which really come together to be one choice, and we have to choose properly in how to handle what God's given us, our wealth. So look at the first verse. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, the key word here is for yourself. You might want to underline that. It doesn't say do not lay up treasures on earth. It says do not lay up treasures for yourself. Warning here is yourself. We accumulate possessions simply for the, just to have them for our own sakes. We hoard things. We spend selfishly. And that's what happens. Those possessions become our idols. And in Luke 12, 22 says, So is he who lays up treasure for himself 
is not rich toward God. And the idea of treasure, folks, is something to place something somewhere, stick it somewhere, stash it somewhere, you know. So we need to understand what Lord is talking about. It's not the things that we use on a daily basis every day, but it's just stuff that we pile up. It's not the necessities. It's not the needs which we meet our daily living, food and so forth, for the family or the poor. It's just stockpiling stuff for our own selves, hoarded up. So that's what he's talking about. Again, he's talking about luxury things, which is beyond what we possibly can use. And the things you don't use, you stash them somewhere because they're valuable and you keep them. So why is Jesus speaking out against these kind of investments, if you will? Well, in Bible times, wealth was basically kept in three ways. There's no banks, paper trails. We don't have the, they didn't have the system we have today. So really, there's three things that you were considered wealthy. How much clothes you got, garments, grain, and then gold or precious metals. And for example, if you take garments in biblical times, it was a very, very important commodity. If you think back to uh, Joshua Akon, it says, When I saw among, that's uh, Joshua 7.21, a beautiful Babylonian garment. That was valuable, along with other things that he took and stole and buried. And you remember Joseph, when his brothers showed up, and Benjamin was there. Look what it says in Genesis 45, 22. He showed him more affection, kind of valued him more. How did he do that? He gave all of them, each a man, changes of garments, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver. That's the gold part, the metals, and five changes of garments. That had value. Samson in Judges 14, 12. He said to them, let the most pose the riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within seven days of the feast, then I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. I'm going to give you, you know, 30 T-shirts. Like, what? But in those days, that's what wealth was. It was expression of wealth. That was the commodity because sometimes they'll have special materials. There's gold weaved into them. So people literally possessed their wealth in their garment. But what's the problem with garments? Well, if you look back at verse 19, it says, Don't lay it up yourself, treasures in earth. See, wear moth. Wear moth. Moth get to your garments. Have you ever noticed when you're wearing clothes, moths don't attack you? Has anyone ever seen like, oh, moth, get off me. You're eating my clothes. No. They only eat what you store. They only eat what you stock up. We tend to hoard. We know a lot of treasures. Instead of garments, we have open your closet. Just look at it. Because sometimes we don't think we hoard stuff. But if you find some things in your closet you haven't worn for a year, 
Ask yourself, why are you hanging on to it? Unless it's, you know, your grandma gave it to you or something like that. Another well stored their wealth was in grain. And you guys remember, I think, the story of the rich fool who said, I will tear down my barns, I will big bigger ones and so forth. You see, his wealth was in that grain. And you notice that verse, uh, word rust, destroy, in verse 19. It's really not talking about rust as itself. It's not reflective of rust. What it means is eating. So something's going to eat it up. What happens to grain? Mice, all kinds of insect. They eat it, destroy it. And the problem with grain, there's little things that again there and eat it all up, and you lose your value. And the third commodity was gold precious metals. How are you going to hide it? Well, you keep it in your house, right? But a thief could break into your house and steal it. Sometimes they would put it in a bag and bury it out in the field. You know, that we read in Matthew 13, 44, it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. That's what he was referring to. That's where they hid their metals. They go out at night, hit it, and then maybe somebody else finds it in the field and steals it. Because they put their wealth, put in big bags, and somebody else digs it up. So your valuables that you store up, Moth eats it away. Grain gets eaten up by animals or insects. Deer, maybe. I have a problem with deer eating all my stuff. I invested in all those trees and bushes. But you can also hide it, but somebody will steal it. So that's how Jesus is describing these luxuries that you store up, what happens to them if you store them up on earth. So if you put your fortune in worldly things, it is subject to worldly corruption. And again, we don't think that we're hoarding wealth, right? We don't see sometimes things that we would consider wealth. And again, human beings are we're attached to things. It's just a natural, sinful thing that's in us. I remember when Stella was younger, and I don't, can't remember, there was some kind of toys. There were stuffed toys that you can get different kind of animals, and she would collect them and got way out of hand. And I said, you know, it's beginning to be stored up. Moth's going to come and eat them. And then it made a rule like you get a new toy, you have to give two up. That stopped real quick. But we don't even realize, but we're storing stuff up like that. And I can give you examples myself. I'm guilty of it. When I was preparing this sermon, I kind of started going deeper. You know how many theology books I invested in that I haven't read yet? They're just sitting there on the fence. You want to hear another one? Tells you how bad pastor is. Growing up, I used to play basketball, right? <clears throat> my dad would never give me any money for basketball, and he would go to Meyer and buy some shoes, and that's it. 
You know, I had a pair of voids, as a matter of fact. When I played basketball, my coach had to buy me some basketball shoes. But everybody else had all these fancy shoes, and you know the fancy, fancy ones are the MJs, the Air Jordans, right? Want to be like Mike. Who doesn't want to be like Mike? Everybody, you know, the shoes makes you a better player. I could never afford MJs. Now that I'm 41 and I'm much wiser and with my finances, I bought myself a pair of Jordans. And do you know, they're just sitting in the closet. Nowhere to go. I wore them like once when I preached here. But I'm thinking about them. And I'm like, look, I work from home now. I wear slippers. They're too fancy to go to Costco. That's the only other place I go. They won't go with my suits. So they're just sitting at there. Now, I'm going to wear them here and there, I, I promise. And I made a promise I'm going to give them away to my nephews when they get to size 10. I think one of them is like coming up. The other one's already size 12. King Kong. But think about those things. We don't think about that that would be storing up wealth, right? Just some shoes. Ladies, check your shoe closet or wherever you keep your shoes. I know one particular garage that got too many. Too many shoes. So Jesus, again, is not saying not to have treasure. And I want you to understand he's saying the complete opposite. He's saying good is our treasure here. If we invest it here, it's going to get stolen and it's going to get eaten. It's going to be pointless. So what he's saying, you need to have the real deal by placing it in the right treasury department, the heavenly treasury department. And you know what? As we will discover, it pays dividends too. So look at verse 20. It says, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, what's our treasure in heaven? Well, we can talk about broad sense. We can talk about, you know, incorruptible and defiable. If we read 1 Peter 1.4, it says, Inheritance incorruptible and defiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We could say, you know, our treasure is Christ. More than anything else. Our treasure is in heaven is... You know, there'll be no sin. So we can talk about all these things, a gift that's never lost, you know, and all so forth. But let's talk about, what is he talking to here? Because he's talking about luxury, money, possessions. So how can we store them up in heaven? You see, in 1 Timothy, remember we just read this scripture, but in 1 Timothy 6.17, it says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor trust in uncertain riches, but in living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. See, sometimes when we get possessions, we get distracted. So God is warning them here, like, hey, don't get too proud. Don't get haughty. Don't rely on your riches. You might be living in luxury, but trust in God because he's the one that gave you your things, right? 
So how do you invest it? How do you send it up? Well, verse 18 answers that. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. And it says, let them do good that they be rich in good works. Be ready to give, willing to share. See, a call of God upon our lives and our luxuries of wealth is to distribute, to share, opposed to hoarding and stocking it up. Again, I'm not talking about necessities. And I'm not talking about go home and sell everything you have. That's not what it's teaching us. But it means to distribute, share the riches God has given us. And that's what he means by when he says in the next verse, in verse 19, says, you know, you do good works, ready to give, willing to share. In verse 19, storing them up for themselves, a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So invest your money in missions. Invest your money in soul winning. Invest your life in prayer, praise to those things that are going to heaven. And when you invest in wealth that's going to heaven, again, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. And the more I send ahead, the more glory there will be. Remember the parable I just read, talked about the guy that built bigger barns and so on? And in verse 20, in Luke 12, it says, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you, then those who will those things be which you are, have provided. So who are you going to leave those things to? Now, the man had big barns, right? And he was saying, I'm going to build bigger ones. So he has big barns, and they're filled. Did Jesus have a problem with that? No. He already has what he needs, right? But the issue is he already has what he needs. He's living in luxury. Barns are full. But he's saying, I'm going to build bigger ones so I can have more stuff. And this is what Jesus is talking about, the rust and destroy. Why are you going to build bigger barns and put your wealth there? You already have enough, but you're going to store it up. What's going to happen to it? It's going to get eaten up. So what good is your treasure anyway, right? But you see, if we read further down in verse 20, uh, 23, it says, Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourself money bags which do not grow old, treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. What's give alms? It's, we talked about doing charitable deeds. Look, you already you have your barns. Don't build new barns. That overage that you have, sell it. Give it to the needy. Do charitable deed with the money or the grain. Feed the, feed the homeless or the hungry. He says, don't just stick your money in bags that are going to rot and decay. There's no return on your investment. He says, put it in the right treasury department. And that's where our investments need to be. And now, I'm not going to be sounding like a prosperity gospel preacher, but you do get rewarded from God when you do those things. It may be material, it may be spiritual. Um, like I said, you know, if you tell people if you give $10, you're going to be $10 poorer. That's how you should approach it. 
God is not obligated to reward you for anything, but he may choose to do that. And look at Proverbs 19.17 says, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. Do you see how God even puts that? God doesn't even say, hey, everything you got is mine anyway. I gave it to you. But he approaches this and says, who has pity on the Lord lends to the Lord. You're lending something to the God of the universe? Again, God may not provide a reward here, might provide a reward in heaven, but he does provide in return on investments and how you view and handle your possessions. In Proverbs 3.9, we read, Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of all your increase, not the leftovers. And when you do that, look at the verse 10, what it says. So your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. So what he was telling that rich fool is like, look, give that away. Your barns will remain full all the time. Anyways, the barns you currently have, God's going to reward you for it. And folks will never be able to invest with God without getting a dividend. He rewards. You'll get the investment back and more. And we read in Proverbs, it says, chapter 11, verses 24 to 25, there is one who scatters yet increases more. There one who withholds more than is right, it leads to poverty. The general soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. The more you give away, the more you get back, right? Isn't that what the farmers do? They sow, and they get more back. They sow, and they get more back. What if, what if the farmer just withholds the grain? What's going to happen? Just what it says is going to lead to poverty. He's not going to get anything in return. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 9, verse 6, but I say, who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And look at Luke 6, 38. This is Jesus himself, and he says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put in your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. See, God only gives. He only gives you the return on what you have invested. Have you thought about that? God, give me this. God, give me that. Well, have you invested with God at all? We're pressured, but he says, same measure will be back to you. So we need to put it in heaven to receive eternal dividend. And you see, a rich man really is poor when we try to find satisfaction in money, in possessions. And I'm not just saying that. The Bible says that. You know, sometimes we hear that because it's like a Christian thing to say, no, Solomon, the richest man ever, right? Acquired lots of possessions. Look what it says, because he had the money. If anybody had the money, this would be him. And in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he says, and he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is also his vanity. He had all that stuff. Found no satisfaction in it. See, we're really poor, even though we can be 
rich here if we have no treasure in heaven, if we have no treasure in that treasury? And folks, I said this before, but one of my favorites when it comes to money, because my says this all the time, Proverbs 23, 5. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. And I can tell you this right now, everybody's money is going to be flying away when you pull up to the gas station, right? There it goes. There it goes. So all those things, folks, eventually will go away. They'll say goodbye. So if you don't have any treasure in heaven, how really how rich are you? So all these material things that we have, just think about it, even the necessities, all the material things that we have, they're not going to last, right? Cars get old. That get old, money, money is gone. Remember a story, a lady and her friend were walking in Dallas, Texas. And as they were walking, she heard a little voice say, hey, hey, and they couldn't figure it out what it was. She looked around, didn't hear anything, is calling, hey, hey, hey. Then she sees a frog, and she picks it up, and it's a talking frog. And he says, hey, I'm a Texas oilman. I've been turned into a frog. You need to kiss me so I can turn back into the Texas oilman, and I'll give you all this money that I have. The lady looked at him and just put him in the purse. And her friend said, why don't you kiss him? You get all that money. She said, I'd rather have a talking frog than all that money. Right? What are, what are our riches? All that money is going to be spent anyway. It's going to go away. Think about it. Economy crashes. Your dollar's worth nothing. All your millions is now not even $10. So there's uncertainty in those riches. And it can only last so long. So he's saying all this money that you have, that you're storing up, eventually it's going to get eaten by moths, rats, or it's going to get stolen. So why don't you invest it where you can really do some good and earn some dividends? And folks, again, all those things that we're chasing today, and I don't want to sound like a party pooper, but I will, all those things will end up in the landfill. It don't matter if your garment is washed gentle cycle only, right? Or do not put it in a dryer or dry clean only. It's going to go to landfill. That brand new car that you got, all sparkly and clean. Your wife closes the garage door on top of it. And she hits a pothole and breaks the rim. Not so new no more. Rusting away. And again, one of the characters in the Bible that I kind of like to study is Solomon. And he was the wisest and the richest. And remember I said, you know, I know God said you can't, nobody can be like Solomon ever before him or after him, but can, can I be number two? <laughs> but he had all this stuff. Most things that you wouldn't dream of. And he said, all this is vanity, emptiness, useless. 
So we have an option to choose. You have a treasury on earth, and you have a treasury in heaven, and Jesus has given us some advice to put it in heaven. So what do you do with your wealth? We shouldn't invest it here. We should invest it in heaven. Now, why is it so important that we invest properly? Because you see, based on how you invest or how you deal with your material things, possessions, wealth, money, whatever it will be, the next verse, verse 21, it says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So that's why it's important to analyze and see where we're investing. And then he moves on talking about two visions. The lamp of the body is the eye, and if the eye is good, the whole body will be filled with light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So he's been talking about the heart. So he's saying where your heart is, your heart is fixed. It's investing in heaven or earth. He says that's where your heart is. And then he illustrates with the eye. And the eye then becomes the illustration of your heart, folks. The eye in this context is the illustration of the heart of the person. What goes on in our heart and mind is going to affect our vision of life, how we view things. And the heart is the eye of the soul. And through our hearts, that's God's truth, love, peace. That's where all the spiritual blessings come to, come to us. Our heart reveals our character then it reveals our factors in determining priorities in our lives. What we consider important, what we consider worthless. In Proverbs 23, 26, it says, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes above my way, uh, observe my ways. So we can see when a light hits our eyes, we can see clearly and so forth. But if there's no light, how can you see? It's like having a clean window and a dirty window. Which one do you see clearly from? And that's the way it is with the heart. Your heart toward God lights up your entire spiritual beating, being. That's what it says, the whole body is good then. It shows how your heart is towards material things, the treasures of the worlds. So he takes a physical illustration it's a spiritual metaphor, and in verse 22, it says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, the whole body is be full of light. You know, I was looking up some different translation. ESV says, If your eye is healthy, King James Version says, Thy eye be single. So what our Lord wants us here is our eye or our heart to be single, to be clearly focused on doing what pleases him. You see, until you take care of you, of your possessions, money, and wealth, you will never, ever be able to deal with spiritual realities. And that's pointed out in Luke 16, 11. It says, therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, which means possessions, who will commit to your trust the true riches? What are the true riches? The souls of people. God's work, 
the single eye sees properly, clearly focused. It's views on treasure, especially wealth. It views those things with the right evaluation. And what he's saying here is a bigger issue than we think. Because those very things might be blinding us spiritual perception. Those things impact how we reflect the Word of God. In verse 23 says, If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Therefore, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Anybody talk about an evil eye? Give them an evil eye. Well, it's a Jewish expression, and let me share it with you so you can see what it means. Um, in Deuteronomy, it talks about a slave coming its jubilee year when he's relieved. It says, Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin, sin among you. So evil eye means really stingy, ungenerous. And in Proverbs, it tells us this. It says, Proverbs 23, 6, do not eat the bread of a miser. ESV says stingy. New American Standard Bible says, do not eat the bread of a selfish. But King James puts it this way in Proverbs 23, 6. And I'm going to sound Shakespearean for a moment. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye. How is he having an evil eye? You see, in Proverbs 28, 22, it's a man with an evil eye who hastens after riches. And he doesn't know that poverty will come among, upon him. It's that evil eye. We're stingy. That's the darkness. How you view things. You view material possessions in an earthly way. And if you do that, poverty will come upon you. Again, how? It'll either get stolen, poverty eat it up. You'll never benefit from it. Because wherever your treasure is, your heart will be. And if your heart's in heaven, then your treasure will also be in heaven. But again, if your, verse 23, eyes bad, your whole body is bad. Your entire beard, uh, being, you're greedy, you're become spiritually blind. You can't see spiritual reality. But a single eye is focused. And it's focused on the Lord. You know, it's interesting how you see this, for example, Apostle Paul, he mentioned this several times in different various ways, but in 1 Corinthians 2, 20, uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul is a one-note man here. He's saying, I don't care about anything else. I just want to know Jesus Christ and crucified, and that's it. Well, Paul preached about other things, didn't he? But if you analyze that, Jesus was at the center of everything that he said. You learn more about Jesus. You go deeper. But Jesus, Paul says, I haven't really known anything except Jesus. That narrow 
single-mindedness, single-focusedness. And in Philippians 3.13, he says, I don't consider myself or apprehended, but the one thing I do, but the one thing I do reaches forward. And that's why God wants us to live with a single eye against versus the sinful eye will have double vision. And James writes in 1.8, says double-minded man is what? Unstable in all his ways. And today, folks, many of us Christians have very poor spiritual vision because we might have started out good, but as Paul writes in Ephesians 4.18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated by, from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them and because of the blindness of the heart. Their understanding gets darkened. Blindness comes upon them. So if we're going to be free from love of money, you have to make some choices. You have to have a right place where you put the, your money, invest. Secondly, we need to see spiritual reality that it pertains to the kingdom of God and not self. And finally, he talks about two masters in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will be hate one, love one another, or else will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, it said mammon means basically possessions. You cannot serve God and money. And anytime you get to this verse, people say they don't agree with me because they say, I have two jobs, I have Two employers, I work two jobs, I got two masters. No, you don't. You got two employees or employers. There's not your masters. Somebody says, well, I live with my wife and our mother-in-law lives with me. I got two masters. No. Now, if you can carry two jobs or whatever, great, but that's not what our Lord's talking about. You can't be a slave to two masters just like you can't walk in two separate directions at the same time. You can't. Now, if you're going to be a slave to two masters, who owns you? Neither one. But the word here is a bond slave. And a bond slave is to be a property of the master, totally, entirely, 100% devoted in obedience to that one master. Well, I might not be 100% God, but I'm not 100% Satan. No, if you're not 100% God, you're 100% Satan. That's how it works. So it's impossible to serve two masters. And in Romans 6.22, it reads this, By now having been set free from sin, sin, we were slaves to sin, right? And having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Because we are now his slaves, we're no longer slaves of sin. And in John 8, 36, says, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. God can only be served with our entire devotion to him. That single-mindedness, single vision. And remember, what, even when Jesus was being tempted in the des desert in Matthew 4, 10, it says, Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord, and him only you shall serve. Him only. God doesn't want a place in our life, folks. 
something we tag it on. He wants preeminence. He is Lord. That means there is no rival to God. He is king. He is Lord. And you see, the orders of these two masters are really, they're opposed. One says, walk by faith. The other one says, walk by sight. One calls you to be humble. The other one says, be proud. So they're really opposed. You can't serve them both. And you really think about it. A castle can only have one king, can it? Can there be two, cast- two kings in one castle? No. And you know, what's interesting, Joshua, a lot of people had to make this type of decisions, and I'll give you some illustration. In Joshua 24, 15, it says, And if it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, says, Choose this day whom you will serve, whatever the gods which your fathers served, where they were on the other side of the river, or gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me, in my house, we will serve the Lord. Caleb kind of did the same thing earlier. In Joshua 14, 8, says, Nevertheless, my brother who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God, fully, entirely. And in Psalm 16, 8, we read David put it this way, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. You know, where's the safest place, folks, to put our treasure? Well, in my opinion, where you're going to have the clearest spiritual sight. That is in heaven. Where are we going to be able to serve the right master? That's where we can invest it. Gives dividends. Again, possession of wealth, folks, I want you to get to understand is, is not a sin, but it is a great responsibility. To whom much is given, much will be asked for. you got much to account for. And again, you know, I always said in some of these things, Jesus addresses the issue of the heart because on externally, we can look holy, right? And I said, well, two can come pray, two can fast, and two can give, but God accepts one and not the other. There's an illustration of that. There's a boy swimming in the ocean, and a man's walking by. And he says, boy, didn't you see that sign over there that says, no swimming? He says, I'm not swimming, I'm drowning. You see, sometimes swimming and drowning looks the same, doesn't it? So it might look the same, but where are we truly investing? Only you can answer that, and God knows, because he can see your heart. And don't be fooled. I can't see it. The person next to you can't see it. But God knows your motives. He knows your heart. So we really need to examine our heart. What's our attitude towards luxury, wealth, money? And we're really forced to make a decision. Three choices, two treasuries, two visions, and who we're going to serve. And folks, we have time to choose, you know, because time is short. Time is short. How are you? Your wealth may be your health, folks. Did you know that? So we're, we're talking about wealth. I didn't have time to expand because I'm already taking a lot of your time. But wealth is not necessarily possession. It could be your health. It could be your family. How are you using all those resources for the glory of God? And Paul writes to Ephesians in 5.15, says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Why? Because in Matthew 24.4 24, says, Therefore you also be ready 
For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The Word of God, folks, tells us we're going to be at that seat of Christ, and we're going to be accounting not just how we live our lives, but also what we did with the things that God gave us, those possessions. You're going to have to give an account. So the safest place is invest it, forward it to heaven. Don't stock and pile up. Again, it's not wrong to own things. Don't get me wrong. It's just those abundant things that we overflowing and like those Nikes that are just sitting in the closet doing nothing. So you see, the point of that is you have it, but you're not even enjoying it. What is it doing? So it doesn't really impact you how you live your life. It doesn't matter I'm here and it's sitting there or anywhere. It doesn't impact me, right? Because it's just sitting there, going to eat up by moths. Do moths eat leather? Put some mothballs in there or something. But again, folks, we have to choose. Are we analyzing our stuff? Are we indulging in self? Because those things really will not bring happiness. And then we have to choose who we serve. And the castle can only have one king, as we said. And I hope you choose the right one. Let's pray.